So, uh, my name is Ryan Longfield. I'm one of the senior pastors of this church. My wife, Suki Longfield, is also a senior pastor of this church. She's not here today. Uh, she is in uh, Prince Edward Islands. Anybody know what Prince, where Prince Edward Islands is? There's only a reason why you'd probably know where Prince Edward One reason. Anne of Green Gables. Oysters. <laughs> I guess there's two reasons. Um, but yes, there's this book for those who are uneducated like myself called Anne of Green Gables. And this was like one of Suki's bucket list items was to go over to Prince Ed- Edward's Island. And uh, so she's over there. Uh, so she's not with us today, but she's fulfilling a lifelong dream of seeing Green Gables and yeah, that kind of thing. I was, I was very thankful to Jesus that I was not required to attend that trip. Um, and that I get to be back here with you guys. Uh, and then next Sunday, I will not be here with you. I will be in Israel. Uh, so I'm going over to uh, Tel Aviv, and hopefully I'll be able to cruise over to the Holy Land. I'm excited for that, but I will not be here next week. Um, but excited to be with you this week, and, uh, and I have something that I really feel like I want to share that's on my heart. So very excited to share with you today. Before I dive into my word, I wanted to uh, do a little bit of family business, and I think this family business also ties into my word, along with what Brian was sharing, but I want to invite Joe and Aaron up to give us an update on what's going on in their lives. All right, we'll just stay here. Hey, my name is Joe. This is my wife, Erin. I know there's a lot of new people, um, but uh, we've been at this church for, I guess, a couple of years now. Um, I used to always say three years, no matter how long we've been here, but it may be <laughs> s- seven. Um, uh, but uh, um, we, we, share, we have two kids, two really cute kids, um, Olivia and Junia, and then we were pregnant. Um, now I say we are pregnant, like, you know, we were pregnant. Um, and uh, I think in the fourth month, um, Aaron went to the hospital, maybe like two weeks ago, I don't even know. And they told her that um, the baby had no heartbeat. And so we were praying. Um, we shared a little bit last week. And um, we were praying, God, for a miracle. And, like, you know, one thing that God, told, like, led me to a place where I was like, God, I'm not afraid to be disappointed. Like, before, um, you know, this is such a low-level example. But if you're afraid that um, if you're a guy and you want to ask a girl out and she might say no so you don't ask kind of thing. Low level, right? None of you guys, you guys don't understand that. All right, okay. Um, <laughs> but it was like that kind of thing of like, um, God, there are some things I'm not going to ask because it's probably not going to happen. And I don't want to get disappointed. Um, but like God just brought me to a place where I, like, I was like, I do not fear disappointment. God, you cannot disappoint me. And so we prayed. And I can say we believed. Like, and it wasn't a wishful thinking. It wasn't like, oh, maybe this will be nice or I'm ignoring reality. Like, no, like we were in it. Like we were crying every day you know so like we're not denying reality um and at the same time like there's this faith that's growing inside of us um and you know um we went to the doctors um and uh just told them like we believe in medicine but medicine can't help our baby so so we're praying and Aaron asked um can you just look one more time and they put the uh, ultrasound in saw our child and they said this is where this is where the heart is and it was still. And, um, you know, like, I, I don't want to, like, give a lesson, and this is what we learned, and we've learned a lot, 
But like, later on we were talking, I was like, I do not regret, I do not regret believing. Mm. And even more, like I believe more. Like I believe more. And I, I use the word, I use the gambling term double down. Right? I was like, I was like, I'm doubling down. Like, I believe more. And I know there are people in our community right now that are praying for healing and their family members. And even more, I'm like, I have more faith to pray for you. Like, I'm praying with you. Like, I, I have more. And, and I can't explain it yet, but like in my, because our spirits like move a lot faster than our minds. And so in my spirit, I know. And I'm asking for insight just so I could explain it to people because people might need to like be encouraged. Um, but we're like crying every day still. But, <laughs> but like, you know, I'm going to give it to my wife. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about how reactive our culture is and how quickly we need to come up with an explanation. Like, even when you watch middle school kids, like in the natural, when you watch middle school kids trying to do science and they do the experiment completely wrong, but they still somehow come up with the same observations and same conclusions... I feel like we do that spiritually all the time too, like our, the way we think it's supposed to be, whether it's like a lack of faith where we're approaching it like, yeah, you know, of course God didn't heal. Like you can't resurrect a baby. Or like on the other side, like, oh my gosh, I believed. I really, really believed. And I really felt like it would happen in that moment. So with that in mind, I mean, we're in this place where I feel like we should be in this place more often, which is a place of like, there are many times in the Bible when Jesus tells story about the master delaying. And you're not supposed to come up with this formulaic conclusion right then and there about why that happened or what the lesson is and how transactional God's supposed to be. So I just want to pray for us that we would feel comfortable like knowing that there's blessing in waiting. So if you don't mind, I'd like to pray for us. Yeah. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the comfort you've given our family. I thank you for the ways that you've shown up in our community in so many ways. We thank you for the healing you've done over Lauren Cabrera's father. We thank you that you are still healing. You are still actively working. And Lord, we just say that, um, God, I just pray for people's faith right now. I pray for those who, for the first time in their lives, they stood out in faith to pray, to lay hands on my stomach, to just pray for the baby to be resurrected. And God, I thank you that you give a hope that does not disappoint. And I pray that their faith would be protected. And God, I pray for those who felt like, who just felt a tension over whether or not they could freely pray for our baby. God, I thank you that you see the beginning stages of faith, but I also pray that you would root out anything that would feel um, any ways that people might have been protecting themselves. Mm -hmm. And God, I thank you that um, you see our faith and that you help us to just um, draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Man, I feel like the more I do life with you guys, the more I'm inspired by you and thankful for you. Thank you for following Jesus. It's fun to do it with you guys. Um, so we're going to talk out of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the biographies of Jesus. 
And uh, we're in the 26th chapter, and a lot of the things that we've already been talking about, from the worship songs, we did not coordinate, the testimony, we did not coordinate, and everything else that's gone on here, it's like, it feels like it's all pointing in a singular direction of something that God has been laying on my heart, and that I think is in this passage. So we're going to go through this passage starting in verse 57, Um, but for some context, I wanted to share a little bit again about where we are uh, in the story of Jesus. So he did ministry for about three years. This is right towards the end of his time going around and preaching and healing and casting out demons and doing a bunch of other things uh, that were very powerful in showing the kingdom of God. And he and his 12 disciples went into the upper room to celebrate this thing called Passover, and that's where they have the Passover feast with the famous painting. And Judas betrays Jesus in that moment. He leaves, and then he returns when Jesus is praying in the garden. So after the meal, Jesus goes, and he's, he's in this garden, and he's talking to his disciples about how he's going to need to go to the cross and die a brutal, breath, a brutal death to pay for the sins of the world. And um, his disciples don't understand. So they, they don't get it, but he tells them that, he's gonna, that they're going to deny him. And they said, no way, we'll die with you. And, and so he's in this garden and he's praying to God. And he's saying, God, if there's any other way that this can happen, please let there be another way. But ultimately, not my will, but yours be done. So he comes to this place where he recognizes the gravity of the situation He recognizes that it's horrible. He doesn't deny that this is an awful problem, but he he engages it with a place of surrender, and he engages it with a place of ultimately laying this down to God and saying, if this is the path that I need to walk in order to reconcile humanity back to you and to save this world from themselves, so be it. So he goes through this agonizing time where he's sweating blood and he's you know, basically ripped in two with the anguish of going through this thing or or projecting out the anguish of going through this thing. And when he comes back to the group, he knows that Judas is going to be there ready to betray him. And so that's where we are. We're coming in right at that part of the scene. Um, So in verse 57, this is right after the arrest And it says, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. 
Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So Jesus is in a pretty heavyweight situation here. Uh, he's being falsely accused. He has people that are lying against him. The religious authorities that it mentions in this passage, they're truly empowered to do things to him. He's not just, you know, they're not just uh, false figures. They have real authority um, to, to bring charges against him and to, 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 you know, ultimately lead the way to him being crucified. And so he's in this, this terrible situation. And his best friend, or one of them, is right outside, following at a distance, in the courtyard, and not up close, having denied him. They all fled uh, when they came to arrest Jesus. And so here Jesus is in this really intense situation. And as I thought about this passage, not just because of the witnesses and the court situation and all that stuff, but I couldn't help thinking of what's going on in our nation today. And then, you know, just the magnitude of it and how loud it is with the, the Kavanaugh stuff that's going on and, you know, this party saying this and just screaming their head off and pointing across and saying, you wicked people, and this other party screaming their head off and saying, you wicked people. And it's so loud. It is so incredibly loud these days. And I feel like because of, partially because of social media and how connected we are as a world, it's just, it's gotten so, so loud. It's just crazy loud all the time. I feel like there's just, it's like a competition for who can be most outraged all the time. No, 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 I'm way more outraged at what you do. And no, no, you're way more despicable than us. And it's, it's this like constant escalation of outrage that is just, it's tiring. It's exhausting. And honestly, I, I, like, you got to kind of stop and wonder, is this, go, is this helpful in any regard? Is this going anywhere? Is what we're in right now helpful at all? And also going on this week was all the intense stuff with our church community, where it has the potential of being crazy loud. You know, like if you've ever been broke or if you've ever been a, in, a, in a financial struggle— it can feel really loud. You know, like you're trying to quiet yourself down or you're trying to sleep at night, but you get woken up and the first thing on your mind is like fear and it's, it's telling, you, telling you things about why you need to be scared and it's telling you that you need to care about this right now even though it's not the time to care about this, it's at night. Or, you know, the intense stuff with health that's going on in our church right now the fears of it and what it's telling you is true and it's, it's yelling things and it's just really loud. I mean, even for me this week, I worked long hours um, because Suki was out of town. It was like I had extra room in the evening to like get more stuff done. And I, my mind was so trained in like the worries of my work day that at night I'd sleep for five hours and then I'd pop awake and I'd be thinking about work and it just became really loud in my thinking. And I'm like, man, if we don't, combat this in some kind of disciplined spiritual way, if we don't have answers for this type of life and this loudness that we experience across so many dimensions, like, we're in trouble. It's just going to feel loud and tumultuous and, you know, like, 
Jesus called the Prince of Peace, it's not going to feel like peace. That is not going to be what characterizes this church if we don't have answers for how do you engage the real things of the world but not have them be so overwhelming that we're just another sounding gong in the world that's outraged and shouting about something terrible. And I feel like when we look at what's going on with Jesus here, we see a pretty amazing thing. He is going through it full force. He's going through something that's so intense that he sweat blood and he felt like he was being torn in two. And this is a guy who's got a lot of faith and who does this thing pretty well, right? Like, this is the master. This is the one who's showing us the way. And I don't know about you, but I've never been through something where I sweat blood. So this feels pretty intense. And he's in this situation where the authorities, the religious leaders, are confused and baffled why he's not being louder. Right? They come to him and they say, are you not even going to give an answer for these things? In other words, do you realize how much trouble you're in right now, Jesus? Like, we have the authority to do things to you, and these people are coming up and they're declaring lies against you that, are, that, that you'll really be in trouble about, and you're not even speaking? He's just sitting there silent? It's so different. It's like, he's not denying that he's in a tough place here. He just sweat blood. But now he's sitting there not giving a place of influence in the same way that the world thinks that it has influence. He's right in this area where everyone in the world and everything in the world would be like, no, make your case. They're lying about you. Tell them why it's not the case and defend yourself and, and use your own strength to prove and take control of this situation. Use what you can do to take control of this thing to get yourself out of this situation that you're in. And he refuses to do it. He sits there in silence and says nothing in verse 63, but Jesus remains silent. And then the high priest says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you're the Messiah. And he says, you have said so. Actually, he says that three times in the next uh, in, if you go like, you know, 20 verses in either direction, he says that three times where somebody like grills him on something and he says, you have said so. And it's, it's a really interesting thing. I actually don't even know what to do with it. So, sorry, I don't have answers for you as to like why he does that, right? Like he says, you have said so. Maybe it's a kind of an empowering statement of like, hey, you're trying to get me to incriminate myself, but like, you're saying things too. He does that to Judas, where he's, Judas says like, hey, it's not me. I'm not your betrayer, right? And he says, you have, said, you have said so. And so it's a kind of a similar situation here, and he does it in the next chapter that we'll get into. I don't know exactly what's going on with that, but it's, it's ambiguous at best, right? Like they're grilling him, and he's really ambiguous. But then he turns to this statement in verse 64, and he totally changes it where he says, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is not ambiguous at all. To sit in front of religious leaders, for us, it's like, what the heck is he saying? For them, they know exactly what he's saying. 100% decisive what he's saying. He is saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. Period. What, what he says here is a reference back to two Old Testament passages 
um, of, of prophets that spoke forward to a time when the Messiah was coming. So one of them is in Daniel 7, and I want to read it to you. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there, was before, uh, and there before me was one like a son of man. Okay, so what he just called himself was the son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, what he just said. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That is pretty strong and pretty stinking clear. The other part of it is, he says, the Lord said, this is from Psalm 110, also a reference back to this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, which Jesus just said, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. It goes on, and it's, it's messianic through and through. Both of what these passages are saying is, don't worry. Sit at my right hand. Sit down. It's a passive stance. Sit at my right hand, the place of power, until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. This is an ultimate thing where God is saying, you do not have to fight this battle. Your job is not to take control in this particular situation. Your job is to sit at my right hand and watch what I do. And so, and then, and then we see what Daniel is saying. He's saying, this one, the, the son of man mentioned here, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all nations and people of every language, and every language worshipped him. His, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Now, the interesting thing here that I want to call out is that Jesus is working off of a different playbook than everybody else. He is living life from a completely different vantage from everybody else around him. Why can he sit there silent? It's because he is looking from a different perspective than everybody else around him. Everything is raging around him. Everything is exploding, and he knows who he is and what the implications are. He's looking at this thing from Daniel 7, and he knows exactly who he is and what will be fulfilled. Now, the really interesting thing about this passage is that he's saying it at a time when he is pretty much disempowered, right? He's saying, he says in the passage, he says, from now on, you will say this about the Son of Man. He's sitting literally under the authorities, those earthly authorities at the time. He has not even been crucified right now. And so another part of his playbook, like he's looking at it from a different vantage. He's looking from a different, uh, from, a, from a different thing here. But the other thing that's a part of his playbook clearly is that his dominion and rule and authority begins at that moment when he says, watch this, this is being fulfilled right now. The first thing that it looks like for him is the cross. The first thing that it looks like for him to be ultimately in charge, the first thing that it looks like for him to be, have sovereign power is to go to the cross. It's completely upside down from the way the world works. Jesus is just working off a totally different playbook. He's got this heavenly perspective with this incredibly long term in both directions. Everybody in the moment thinks that this is the most important thing and it's firing on all cylinders and it's loud as all get out. And Jesus is just, he's quieter because of the vantage that he has and the playbook that he lives by. So he, he's very clear about who he is. 
And they say, you're worthy of death, and they start spitting in his face, etc. And so now that we've unpacked the passage a little bit, I want to talk about how Jesus' perspective is so different from everybody else's. The first thing that I want to call out is that Jesus understands that this is a spiritual battle that manifests in an earthly realm. So Jesus is in a wildly spiritual battle that is just showing up in this earthly realm that we have. And I think that this is the first step for us in terms of how do we live above this stuff, or it's not, again, it's not that we deny the existence or deny the importance, but how do we live above it while engaging it like Jesus did? And the first thing that we need to understand is that there's a more important realm going on around us all the time. The most important thing that is going on right now is not what you see in the natural, period. I don't even care what situation it is. And it's really hard because we have senses that are really strong to interpret what's going on in the natural realm. It is very, very hard to not allow the loudness of this natural realm to eclipse the seemingly quietness oftentimes of the spiritual realm. Right? Like oftentimes the spiritual realm feels so silent and the natural realm feels so loud and we live with these senses where it's like, how do you not get into a place where you're constantly overwhelmed with this stuff? But in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities, powers, rulers. It's against authorities and powers of dark, this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not primarily against flesh and blood. It's not. And the reason why Jesus can operate in such a different way is because he's operating off of a completely different level of importance. This stuff here, he sees clearly, is not the most important thing. And so he can operate in this thing where the Sadducees think they have a bunch of power and he realizes that they have none. The Sadducees think that they actually think that they have control over Jesus' fate. And what Jesus is looking back at them, and, and you, can, you can like get this picture where he's like, you are completely deceived that you have any place of authority over me whatsoever. Because they're living in the earthly realm and he's living in the spiritual realm. He sees at that moment that they are simply a pawn in the Lord's hand that he's using for his own ends. And if in a minute the Lord decided to change his playbook, it would, it would show up in the spirit, it would show up in the natural realm and things would be different. It's not that the earthly power doesn't play a role. I want God-loving, faith-filled, surrendered people to be in the places of power and I want to watch the people prosper because they're sitting under an amazing person who can represent the Lord's rule. Like, I want that, and it's super important. It's not that the earthly power doesn't matter. It's that the earthly power isn't the most important power. It mostly manifests something going on that's in a more, most important realm. The key is the battle happens there. The results show up here. That's how it works. And so they're wanting him to fight this earthly battle, and he's uninterested in fighting that battle because he realizes that that's not the root of the issue. 
that the root of the issue is that he's going to lay down his physical life to win a spiritual battle that will unlock victory for all of humanity going forward. That's what Jesus sees going through this exact same situation. Now, the crazy thing is, is that we need to understand that when we talk about the battle not being against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, there are real spiritual forces that are trying to work through earthly means. So an example of that is there's something that we'll just call a political spirit. But what the political spirit tries to do is it tries to take control and advance the powers of darkness through political means, through gaining alliances, through manipulation, through using what people are saying and want to hear. So you find out what somebody wants to hear and then you adapt your language to that and using manipulation, using twisting arguments and accusations, using lies and deceptions to create loyalties. And then it uses pressure and fear and shame and control to take control of the earthly situation. Now, this is going on all the time. I'm not putting a political party on this. This is going on across our political system. This is, do not tie this in any regard to, oh, you know, he's talking about the Republicans, or he's talking about the Democrats. Oh, how do I apply this to the Kavanaugh situation? Whatever it is, it's like, you can do that later. We're talking about spiritual demonic forces that exist in our earth, and we're always so confounded as to why that, or we're, we're always so like surprised when things aren't going well. It's like, oh my gosh, things are going so horribly, and can you imagine, things are going terribly, and it's like, oh my God, do you think we need a savior? Are we convinced yet that we don't have the tools in our kit to figure this one out? The reason is, is because spiritual forces, if we do not have the Lord, are going to overpower our lives every time. The only way that you win this battle is to have the king of kings on your side and to work off of his playbook. And so when we think, when we see it derailing and going off the handle, it's like, yeah, yeah. We still need a savior. We still need a savior. And I think the thing that's going on right now is that our problems are so big that if you don't have faith in God, where are you going to put your trust? It's got to be something that feels really, really, really big. And the only thing besides God that feels really, really, really big is our political system. What is something that has tons of money, that has a military behind it, that has a lot of control in a lot of different ways, that's our military. Okay, let's use more earthly means to try to solve spiritual problems. It is not working. It will never work. And I think if we look back at history, we've done this long enough that I think that, that, that we've kind of got the conclusion here. And so there's this political spirit that's, that's working through human means, trying to gain control to have dark outcomes and uses pressure and fear and shame and control to get things done. Jesus in Mark 8 calls this the yeast of Herod. Herod is one of the political leaders of the time. He says, beware of the yeast of the Sadducees, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees in this one, the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. What he's saying here is be careful for the teachings that are coming out of the religious system right now because they're toxic and they're not filled with God. And watch out for the teachings and the, and the manipulations that are going on in the political realm that will tell you that you need to fear and align in order to get the things done that you think are most important to get done. We see elections, debates, and nominations in our realm. 
there, there is so much activity going on and there's a real war that's going on that we need to quiet down this earth enough that we're able to engage where it really matters. We're going to live one of two ways, like Jesus at peace as to the things going on around us because he's tapped into a different realm, or we're going to live fired up here, and there's no way if you're fired up here in that way that you're going to be in a place of peace and faith. No way. You can't be spun up here and be faith-filled there. When I talk about this, this isn't about politics. It's the same with the other institutions that claim power in this world. It's the same with economics. It's the same with mammon. It's the same with the rejection of people. The same with the fear of failure. For those of you who are students who have ever been a student, do you remember how scary tests used to be? It's like, oh my gosh, what if I fail this test? My life will be completely over. It's like... Hindsight is like 2020, right? You look back and you're like, that is so ridiculous. But how often does that happen? Where you're a year away from whatever you're going through that feels so loud and crazy, and you look back and you go, wow, that wasn't nearly as loud. Or that doesn't, you know, like that has, that has compressed down a lot since that moment. And so sometimes you look back and it's like, you know, wow, like, what was I so spun up about? And then other times you look back and you go, no, that was one of those moments. That was one of those moments. You know, and actually, now I've trained myself when I'm going through stuff, I asked myself this question, am I going to remember this in three years? It's a really good question to ask. Because sometimes the answer is yes, and there's a reality of how you engage those things. And then sometimes the answer is no, and it's like, okay, like, just treat it like that. But, like, money screams so loud at us, right? It yells so loud. You need this. You're going to be un—you're not going to be safe. What if you don't have this job? What if your boss doesn't like you? What if you get fired? It's like, it yells so loud. For me, one of the, one of the ones that yells the loudest is the rejection of people. Like, the, the funny one for me from my past is there was this time where I felt like God was telling me to go preach on Sproul. And I'm like, dude, I felt like Jesus in the garden at that moment. <laughs> For some of y'all who don't care about that stuff, uh, it probably sounds ridiculous, but we all tend to have different fears and different areas that feel really intense and amplified depending upon where we came from. And for my background, the opinion of others mattered a lot. For other people, the, the, the money and the money that you have, it matter, matters a ton, you know, and the fear of poverty matters a ton. And so these are the areas in our life where it gets super loud, right? It gets really, really loud. When I was thinking about this, I thought of an interesting example, which is if you've ever been involved in a deliverance where somebody has a, a demon cast out of them, what almost always happens right before the demon is cast out of a person is the demon gets super loud. It starts to like yell and froth and like make dramatic moments and like, you know, like basically 
what you learn in deliverance ministry is after you've done it for a while, like once you see that, you know that it's almost over. Because this is the last playbook in, in, this is the last trick in the devil's playbook. Like he'd much rather stay silent and creepy and kind of like stay under the covers. But as soon as the thing starts to manifest and get really loud, that's when you know that you're about to get victory over this thing. And so it feels similar in a lot of other situations if we're reading off of the right perspective, right? From the earthly realm, you see the thing manifesting or slithering or screaming or flothing or whatever. And like, you're like, holy smokes, like what is going on here? This looks like it's going exactly in the opposite direction. But if you work from a heavenly realm, you realize, oh, this is just a manifestation that the devil's about to, to lose some serious territory. And this same kind of thing exists all over life. The signal that would, would indicate to a spiritually-minded person victory would, would indicate to an earthly-minded person defeat. It's the same exact thing. Jesus is in his moment where from all earthly perspective, it looks like pure defeat. And he's thinking victory. He's thinking, this is the path that my father has taught me, told me to walk. And he starts declaring messianic verses that talk about his supreme dominion and supremacy over everything, sitting under their rule in this very moment. That's where Jesus is living. So I want to just like, I want to talk to us about the hard question, which is, what does it look like to engage deeply in the world, but to not be so impressed by it that you live faithless? Like, that's the tension that we're going for here. Jesus isn't emotionally disconnected from everything going on here. He's not, you know, like, oh, you earthly-minded people thinking that all this stuff matters, you know, like, and has no emotion about anything. That's not how he lived. You know, 10 verses in the other direction, he's, he's like crying and, and pleading that there's another way. Like, he, he understands. He came to this world to engage in the darkness and the sin in a real way that would really cost him. And so there's this interesting paradox where it's like, on the one hand, we live our life in a way where we want to engage in this stuff and we want to break the powers of, in dark, of injustice and darkness in every way that we possibly can. So it's like, in one sense, we're all in on this earthly thing and seeing his kingdom come. And then on the other sense, it's like, but don't be so all in that your mind is living in the world where you're working by its playbook and you start to think it's about the power you can amass and the money you can gain and the, the ways you can overcome through the political system. And it's like, let's just say we had a truly surrendered to God Christian president who was like really, really high integrity and operated in a, in a really like biblical playbook. Do we think that all of our earthly problems go away at that moment? Like, do we think that because this one person has the power of the presidency, that the power of the presidency is going to carry us to a place where you know, all of a sudden, like, everything is good and our nation is good. It's like, no, I bet the president feels super disempowered by the problems that he's facing all the time. Can you imagine, like, being the president and you have all this information about the stuff that's going on and you're expected to be the one that's, like, solving this stuff? 
I bet that person feels more powerless than we do over this stuff. It's not the money we amass. It's not any of the earthly stuff that we could possibly gain. It's Jesus' playbook that we see right here. He doesn't deny the problem or the human institution exists or that they matter. He denies them the place of ultimate influence. He does what God says in that moment, often in the opposite of the spirit of which it's coming. And he lives this surrendered way where he actually believes that the small things that he does in surrender carry ripples through eternity. That's the difference, is where is the source of the power that Jesus is living by? It's purely the step of obedience. And so rather than looking at these powerful human things and, and trying to enter in and grab hold of the earthly institutions, what he solely focuses on is, can I step in a place of obedience with my Father, wherever he tells me to do, whether it's big or small, and trust that whatever that thing is carries, carries weight? And so I want to give a very practical example of, as to what this would look like. Our modern-day politics. How do we engage with our political environment right now? So I'm contending, like, super loud, you know, more yelling's not helping, and so it's like, okay, then how about somebody has some answers? You know, like, okay, what's, what's my answer? How do I choose to engage in this? I'll give you my perspective. I believe it's biblical, and I believe it also translates to a bunch of other areas in life. So I think the first thing is, is making sure that your house is in order. It's making sure that, that you're in a place that's, that's truly not only heavenly-minded, so I think it's like, of course, like getting a heavenly perspective, and what that means as a starting point is denying anything in this earth the ultimate place of influence. So before you can be effective in politics, you better understand that politics aren't ultimately the thing that matters, even before you engage it. Before you go and try to be a successful business person so that you can amass a bunch of money that you can give it away and you can solve world hunger, you need to start by recognizing that money does not carry ultimate power to solve the things of this world, that we're fighting a spiritual battle. And so the first piece is to deny even the thing that you're about to engage the place of influence that may cause you to like want to get in there and grab you know like on the one hand you'd think the more important you think this area is the more vigor you're going to go at it and you're going to say like okay i'm going to work harder in here than ever before because i see the value of whatever's going on here in terms of really changing and that's actually that's actually not the place where your passion needs to be derived from it's totally counterintuitive. Before you engage in any realm that you're looking to have influence, you need to, you need to start by saying, saying, okay, there's importance here, but the ultimate victory for what's most important here is not going to be found in anything that I put my hand to while I do this. And so that's the first piece. It's not denying the importance, it's just denying it a place of ultimate importance. The second piece is making sure your house is in order in terms of a place of surrender. The thing that I'm so impressed with with Jesus is that when he's engaging this, he's ready to lay down his entire life for it. He's truly ready to self-sacrifice for the thing that he's, he's, in this case, quiet about, but he could be yelling about. And I see so many screaming their head off 
but don't have any real self-sacrifice in anything that somebody's yelling about. Not everybody, but it happens a lot. Total outrage, but no sense that, like, there's real self-sacrifice ready to engage in this. So I think it, for us as believers, before we go and we really throw our lot in in any particular area, we have to get into a place of surrender like Jesus did. And then the final thing is, is this place of trust that the small things that I do in this realm through obedience are the things that I'm ultimately putting my trust in to carry the most amount of weight. So I've talked to Joe O a lot about what's going on in their school. And one of the things that's, is it okay if I share about this? Probably not. Uh, (laughs) I'm not convinced, so I'm not going to, I won't share. Okay, I'm not going to share that. Um, Let me think about another example. (laughs) That was such a good example. Okay, what's that? No, that's okay. Um, I'll take the way that I try to engage my work life. So the way, the reason why I go to work every day is because I'm trying to, I'm trying to, number one, set an example for Christians about what it looks like to live in this area, in the work world, but stay 100% surrendered. It's really difficult. The ambition that screams so loud in this area about, like, you need to be a great professional who has this, you know, like, anchor yourself around your career, etc. It screams really loud. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do... One of the things that I'm trying to do through all this... Oh, great. That's pegged to the wall right there. Is... um, I'm trying to do this in a way that exemplifies surrender in a place where it really tries to pull at your affections. And I'm the first to say, you guys know this, that I'm, I'm not doing it perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. But I'd really like to get to a place where I'm able to quiet down the things of the world to such an extent where I can operate in ideally a big important position from a world perspective but do it in such a surrendered way that I do it God's way. I don't use the world's playbook to try to do this well and then say, oh, praise Jesus, I got promoted 18 times and now I run a big company or whatever. What I want to do is I want to live in a place that feels like as hard as it could possibly be, maybe, to live in a place of full dependence and surrender upon the Lord. So how could I have a billion dollars and have it have zero tie over me? How could I be the CEO of a big, important company, maybe, if God wants it, and have the fame or the influence or the, have, have it have zero, zero influence over me to the point where God says in a minute, I want you to lay it down now, and I want to give away all your money right now, and I could do it, no problem. But the way I also want to engage it is to realize that the things that I do every day, they actually have some importance, right? Like there's, there's people that are under me in my, in my work life, and there's real things that are going on in their lives that I have the opportunity to engage really deeply in and help them through as a pastor in a place where they'd otherwise have no pastor. 
I want to do it in a way where maybe I gain enough uh, uh, influence in the business realm that I can use that in other realms to help the kingdom advance. And so it's this weird, if you get this, it's this weird thing where it's like kind of denying it influence, but kind of engaging its importance and kind of caring about it, but kind of not. And it's like, it's not straightforward. And so I think that's, that's why this is so conf- confusing. And, you know, we talked about last week where Jesus, Jesus had told his disciples to buy a sword. And then the moment where they need a sword because Jesus is being taken, he, Peter cuts off somebody's ear. He takes force to take control of the situation. And Jesus says, no, like, this is not the time for the sword. Right? It's like so weird. Why would you tell me to buy a sword if, the, if in a few days you're going to get captured by soldiers and I stand up in boldness and cut off the dude's ear and you tell me to put the sword away? Like, what are you talking about? Is this important or is this not this important? Do we protect ourselves or do not protect ourselves? Do we care about this thing or do we not care about this thing? And I think it's like, it is not straightforward. Anybody who tells you this is very straightforward is not engaging in the complexity of this life and how we're supposed to overcome. And so it's like, you know, I look at the O's in their school and they're living surrendered and they're living in a way where I've talked about this before. They could make way more money, but they've chose to engage in this realm. For me to say that that realm is not important is trivializing the call on their life. That realm is super important. It's educating our kids. But when you watch the way that they live their life in that area, it's surrendered where they don't, they're not doing it in a way where it gets unhealthy, where it's so important that now they feel like they need to take control of it. As soon as the thing amplifies to loud enough that you feel like you need to take control of it, that's as soon as you've lost all your influence in that place. And so it's this weird tension that we live in. Like even listening to the testimonies today, like Brian's testimony, they go to Manila They pray for this dude. They pray for him some more. They pray for him some more, and nothing happens. You have two amazing people that love Jesus like crazy. And they have a church that loves them and surrounds them and contends in prayer, and nothing happens. Like, doing this wrong would say that that stuff doesn't matter. Like, can you imagine, like, Job's friends, if we— if we said, oh yeah, it's like, it's okay. It's just like, have a heavenly perspective. Like, get over it. It's like, no. Like, that guy's legs and his sickness in Manila, that matters. The O's losing their baby, that matters. Like, the real pain that people are going through and struggling with, that stuff, it matters. The toxic Sanhedrin that Jesus was sitting under and the the corrupt political authorities and and the stuff that he was dealing with, that that stuff matters. But Jesus is sitting there back with a different playbook, with a different perspective, with a different way of knowing how to influence the world around him. And it started with a heavenly perspective and it started with a surrendered life, understanding that ultimately— The way that you influence this stuff is you fight a spiritual battle and the spiritual battle is fought by surrender to Jesus because he's the one with the spiritual perspective that can tell you what really is important in that particular situation. The small things 
done in the hand of God, they ripple and they have this huge effect. And the loudest things from the earthly perspective that aren't done in surrender, they just do nothing. They just contribute to the chaos. And so if we're going to practically, like even just like going back to the political thing, if we're going to engage in it, let's engage in it. It's important. There's stuff going on there that really matters. Like the decisions really matter. But the way that we need to engage it is surrender, prayer, looking for guidance, asking the Lord, what's the small or big thing that I could do that would have a real impact here? Not just the illusion of an impact, not feeling loud, not communicating my outrage louder than everybody else because I'm so outraged because I'm so self-righteous. But getting before the Lord, getting into a place of true surrender where it's like, if you tell me to do something sacrificial in that area, like as I pray about this, I will do it. Because I understand that that sacrifice will send ripples through this area that really does matter. And that kind of posture is how we need to look at all of the areas of life. Where we dull down its influence relative to the glory of God, get into a place of faith, remember where the real power comes from, and engage the spiritual battle that's going on expecting earthly results. And the application of that is is everywhere in life. It is so easy to spin out of control. It's so easy to have our minds be spun up. And man, I lived half my week like that this week. Just like so concerned with work, and I get done with it, and I spend this long time with the Lord, and I look back, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? We're listening to the news and fretting, you know? It's like, it's like does that do anything? No, it just steals my faith unless I come into that place with a different perspective. And so what I'd like to pray for us as we close is just that God would give us a heavenly perspective, a different perspective to live by, that we could truly live as people of peace, where if we're under the most gnarly court that we could get an execution and and we realize that even in that environment that we can sit back silent and deny them any place of real power. Or that we can engage in the most intense places, whether that's work life or education, holy smokes, being on this campus, or our political system, or whatever it is. Like, the nations will rage. The nations will continue to rage. We must discipline ourselves to not rage along with them. And this is how we do it. And as we enter a place of peace, we enter a place of faith. And as we enter a place of faith... There's this fun little passage that says all things are possible with God. Yes, that's true. There's also a fun passage that says all things are possible for those who believe. All things are possible for those who believe. Not all things are possible for those who are the CEO. Not all things are possible for the principal of the school. Not all things are possible for the president of the United States. Not all things are possible for any other situation except for the person who believes. And there's no chance we're going to believe if we're spun up with craziness and get involved in the raging of the world. And so let's just pray for the Lord to give us a different perspective as we do this life together and try to follow him. Let's stand.